0: Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. This is an Irish Independent podcast. Grace Livingstone's life was ended in the most unexpected circumstances –
1: in the late afternoon of December 7th, 1992, one of Grace Livingstone's neighbours was in her kitchen browning meat for a casserole when she heard a loud noise. In another neighbor's house, a lady was putting away her Christmas shopping when she heard what she described as a booming noise that echoed through her house. But it wasn't until that evening, when Grace Livingstone's husband James arrived home from work, that he found a darkened house and upstairs, his wife's body on the bed, shot through the head, her hands, feet and mouth bound by black tape.
0: I'm Kevin Doyle, and today on the Indo-Daily, I'm joined by Sarah Cadden, Sunday Independent columnist, to examine the brutal murder of Grace Livingstone and the mystery that remains unsolved to this day. Sarah, can you start by telling me about the victim in this story?
1: Grace Livingstone was a 57 year old woman who lived in Malahide in North County, Dublin. And on the 7th of December 1992, she was murdered in her home in the middle of what seemed a perfectly ordinary day in a perfectly ordinary house in a very nice, comfortable area in Dublin.
0: At the time, she would have been called, we, we kind of think of it as a derogatory term now, but a housewife.
1: Yes, absolutely. You know, you read kind of reports of the, the Livingston's uh, household at that time and it was very much she enjoyed arranging flowers, doing the garden. Her husband was uh, worked for revenue. He um, were, he was involved with the FCA. He liked fishing. You know, th- there was a kind of a story about how she would he'd bring home the worms that he used for bait so that she could put them into the garden, you know, to help, uh, you know, the soil, the, the soil, yeah, and uh, you know it just also you know nearly a little bit nineteen fifties even from today's perspective. Um, it was a sort of now their their domestic life has been described as idyllic and blissful, but obviously this was completely destroyed um, that day in early December.
0: Yeah, and they lived on a relatively quiet road in Malahide. I know now Malahide is kind of a bustling centre, but. It was only 1992. You say it does sound like it was a lot longer before that in some ways, but it was a quiet area that they lived. Everybody knew everybody.
1: I think people in Malahide would probably say that that's still the case. A lot of people who live there would still refer to the village in the same way that other kind of little coastal enclaves around Dublin would like, you know, Dawky or Sandymount or Hoth. The village remains very much the heart of Malahide and it's the kind of place where people who grow up in Malahide either stay there or always feel drawn back to it
0: you mentioned her husband James then he becomes a very big part of the story but he he was from Monaghan originally and he was very high up in the revenue commissioners.
1: He was and he had set up the special investigations unit in revenue, which he ran. And it at the time, one of the big uh, issues that he uh, brought up around his wife's death was that he would have been looking into people who were smuggling fuel across the border, um, illegal offshore or not offshore accounts and you know he would have felt that he was dealing working in with some fairly fairly shady dealings let's say.
0: Mm, He wasn't a friend of the criminals shall we say. The IRA in fact were a big part of his target. The people he was targeting were many members of the IRA.
1: Yes and one of his points that he made after his wife's murder was that he apparently went to the guards with a list of people whom he thought could have been and were you know potentially capable of being involved in her death.
0: So the murder then by all accounts it was and this is such a stereotype but it was a perfectly normal day in a perfectly normal village in Dublin.
1: Yeah, and again, it's that kind of nearly that 1950s thing nearly like the Truman Show. You know, he, he left for work on the button. He carpooled with one of his colleagues who lived, you know, a matter of minutes away, collected him. They drove to work together. He spent the day at work. He went for a swim with some colleagues in the afternoon and then came home at the same time as he did every day, dropping his colleague again home to his house before he came to his own home. And what did Grace do? Grace, that day, had gone to the supermarket. She had uh, talked on her doorstep with one of her very close neighbours. And then from appearances of the house, she'd gone about her day. They had been due to go to uh, his native Monaghan that evening for an anniversary mass for his late brother. And so when James Livingston arrived home, he was expecting that they were having their dinner slightly earlier than usual in order to head off
0: that's not what happened though so the story goes that he went for a swim at lunchtime um, but other than that he had been in work all day he drove his colleague from the revenue commissioner Art O'Connor home um, at 5 o'clock and he landed home himself around 10 to 6 what happened then?
1: It was early December. The house was pitch dark by ten to six, and um, he couldn't find his his wife downstairs in the house. He went upstairs, and she was dead, uh, face down on their bed. She had black tape around her uh, head and mouth, and she'd been shot. A, a pretty gruesome killing. Very much so. I mean, very very shocking. There's tiny domestic detail reported at the time of dustpan and brush and a pile of kind of floor sweepings in the kitchen. It, it was a real juxtaposition of the very ordinary with really extraordinary violence.
0: And so what does James Livingstone do on finding the body?
1: he ran to get help and i think he was unsuccessful in one at one door and arrived at uh, another neighbor's house um she was a nurse she came to help him and other neighbors were kind of summoned and came uh, to the house also
0: and so there was a call logged with the emergency services at 5:58 p.m. so we're told he got home around 10 to 6 so pretty much were a few minutes And the call is going in to 999. But there's an important detail in this, which is that that nurse you mentioned and a local doctor, they pronounced Grace dead at the scene at 6.35. And they told Gardy that they believe she had been dead for some time.
1: Yes, the doctor, who was uh, Dr Moodley, he uh, estimated that she had been dead from about between half past four and five o'clock that evening, which proved very significant as as this case progressed.
0: And so that then begs the question, having gone to Mass, having done her shopping, having chatted with neighbors around two o'clock in the afternoon, who killed Grace Livingston?
1: That remains unanswered to this day. Immediately, as is often the case, her husband was the prime suspect in this the gun that she was killed with was his gun it was found in a hedge outside in the garden he had, there were eight firearms in the house it was subsequently found that not all of them were licensed and you know the, the what what james livingston would have held in later years was that it was decided that it was him and then the case was being built around that decision
0: Now, something we always hear in the media reports after a murder like this is Guardi are carrying out door-to-door inquiries. That's exactly what they did here. And the various stories they got from neighbours show why those type of inquiries are always done in cases like this. What were they told?
1: There were three separate um, instances of people hearing, again, women much like Grace Livingston, who were in their houses in the late afternoon, um, and they reported hearing loud bangs at around the 4.30 mark. One woman said that she knew it was around 4.30, she was going to watch Emmerdale Farm. Another woman said that she... Um, knew that it was 4:30 because she was making a stew and she looked at the uh, at the cl- clock for timings and another neighbor reported hearing bangs too.
0: And so that does fit with the timeline that the doctor had put on possible death.
1: Yes it does and in 2008 quite some time after all this there was an inquiry into the investigation in the in the high court and it was it, it was heard then that the guardy had suggested that the noises may have come from the sea or nearby building works, and really weren't factored in. Again, holding up James Livingstone's argument that everything was trying to be made to fit that he, he did it
0: because the guard of forensics, and this is important, suggested that actually her time of death was much closer to the time of her body being discovered, that it was sometime perhaps around six o'clock.
1: Well, Dr. John Harbison, who was the state pathologist at the time, estimated her death to be close to six o'clock. Later, when um, a detective superintendent was uh, asked to review the the investigation, he spoke to to Dr. Harbison, who said he couldn't argue with Dr. Moodley's opinion that it had been close to 430
0: and so the day of the funeral, there is no doubt really in the minds of Gardee, we know, we know in hindsight that James Livingston was pretty much their chief suspect, maybe not their only suspect, but the one that they were putting most energy into trying to f- find out more about his movements. And even on the day of the funeral, they approached the family looking for blood samples.
1: Yes, Yes. and James Livingston has said he was shown photographs of his wife's dead body, his children, who were a daughter of 22 and a son of 20 who lived with them in the house in Malahide. They were both told terrible things about their their father, his reputation at work. The the Livingstons claimed that there was a great campaign of, you could call it, intimidating behaviour around that time.
0: And so, Sarah, talk me through the evidence. What did Guardy actually have to work off? Because it was a crime scene. They had a crime scene. They have sort of witnesses in terms of the neighbours, Um they don't have any motive and that seemed to be the key thing that was lacking talk me through what evidence they did have
1: the one thing they did have was a fingerprint on a on the tape that was around grace livingston's mouth and and head and that was a a, a fingerprint that they that i've never found a match for it did not match james livingston it was his gun, but there was no residue on his clothes or on his hands of having shot a gun. Um, the the neighbours have said that there was no smell of cordite in the room that would indicate that a gun had been shot in that room recently. So the evidence, you know, the biggest evidence even to n- now is is what the neighbors heard and what the neighbors saw. It was it's a small cul-de-sac of not very many houses. Everybody would have known each other, probably known each other's movements quite well. And so there were the the neighbors who heard the bangs. There was a gardener across the road who was topping trees who saw uh he says a man in the porch of the Livingston's house after 4.30. And it was suggested that maybe he was mistaken. This was a woman and that it was Grace Livingston herself. Another neighbour, uh, two teenage girls coming home from school, saw a young man in a beige or fawn coat in on the cul-de-sac. And one said that he either went into the Livingston's house or won either side of it.
0: But yet those lines of inquiry never really Got anywhere. I, I think one of the most in the era of Google Maps that we now live in, one of the strangest things was the guardy's attempts to disprove James Livingston's alibi, which was that he didn't get home until 10 to 6 in the evening.
1: And Art O'Connor obviously was was crucial to that. His work colleague. Yes, was crucial because he had dropped him off at home and it's no distance, as you say, in the era of Google Maps from one house to the other. And Art O'Connor has said himself that he felt that what he was saying happened didn't suit what they wanted to hear.
0: Hmm. So Gardy actually ran tests whereby they would leave the revenue offices at a certain time to prove how quickly you could get back to the Livingstones house. And on one occasion, they managed to get there by 5.36pm. But it doesn't really tally with the real life experience and the fact that there was a second man on this journey with James Livingstone.
1: You're probably talking ideal conditions as well. Every light green for you. And again, you have to say that 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 was the ideal uh, time of arrival, if you, you know, Really went all out to get there that quickly. You mentioned that James
0: Livingston had his own theories about what might have happened.
1: He did, and he believed that some he someone that he was investigating um, wished him harm. The guards would have said at the time, "Why then would they kill his wife? Why not just kill him?" And you know that that's a reasonable question. But James Livingston had a list of people that he thought capable of doing this crime.
0: And so the guard investigation completed by August 1993 and yet nobody was charged. So what What did the guardy at the time conclude?
1: They concluded it could not be proved. There was no evidence that it was James Livingstone. It remained open. He had been arrested in March um, 1993 and that was the, the basis of the High Court um Uh, case in 2008, which was um, uh, on the grounds of unlawful arrest of James Livingston and slander. And the guards settled that case um, after five days.
0: The cold case review then that took place years later, as you say, new witnesses came forward, but I find the fascinating story of the hitchhiker. Can you tell me about that one?
1: So there were a number, as we've already mentioned, there was the, the young man in in the beige coat who apparently had collar length hair um, and he, everyone had said that about his hair being slightly longer and a young man and a hitchhiker that, that matched this had been seen. Behaviour seemed agitated. Uh, the person who picked him up said that he had become more agitated when the report came on the news, on the radio, in the car about the, the killing that man was later located and cleared. Cold there case w-
0: detectives actually tracked him down to the UK. There but se- the fingerprint didn't match again.
1: There were several young men who uh, seemed that they might fit the bill and uh, they were all located and no one no one has matched that fingerprint.
0: And so it remains an unsolved case today. All these years later after from 1992 we still don't know who killed I take you back to the question I asked you at the start Sarah who who killed what happened to Grace Livingston we don't know
1: Well I think what was said in the the high court inquiry into the case was that James Livingston had been entitled to a presumption of innocence and uh, a par- part of the The grievance and the grief that that family felt over the investigation into her death was that they felt he had not been presumed innocent. And while his children said in in 2008 that they felt a degree of relief that the, the ordeal was over, he said, but we still don't know who killed Grace and we really should find out. But no one has.
0: My thanks to Sarah Cadden for joining me today. I'm Kevin Doyle, and today's episode of the Indo-Daily was produced and researched by Tabitha Monaghan, sound by Gavin Hennessy. archive clips were from RTE and independent.ie. If you enjoy the Indo-Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.